Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security, where we've had some vacation time and some things kind of uh, take me out of it. But now that that's all done and things are back to normal, we are back. How you doing, Zhao? All good. Yeah, it was some rightly deserved vacation time. Um, we're back to regular schedule now, mm -hmm. at least until the next unscheduled event happens. Right. Uh, but yeah, um, we have some interesting stories lined up and... There are some interesting moments that happened while we were away that we want to get into. Yep. And they will, we're going to be looking at something that happened that I initially framed as one of those facepalm moments that we've covered, but I've since changed my mind about it and we'll get into why I changed my mind about it. But yeah, it goes to show how complex stuff gets and how easy it is to overlook stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're going to get into. And, you know, we always talk about the cloud being someone else's computer. But what do you do if your files are on no one else's computer because something happened? That's what we'll talk about. So where do we want to start? I guess we can start by the, the very beginning. There are quite some things that we need to get out of the way to get into the actual meat of the story. So let's start from the beginning. Um, Azure has these geolocated sites all over the world, and they have one of them at southern Brazil. About one week ago, there was an issue there where some databases were lost, and then after looking at the, at the problem, there's an interesting sequence of events that led to it. So everything is looked at as code when you're in the cloud. You can automate and you can code your servers, your services, your systems. Everything is looked at as code. And that goes not just for the customer-facing stuff, but also for the management stuff. For the guys working at Azure, they also deal with their stuff, and it's the only way to manage their stuff, is by treating it as code, so that they can automate and script everything. And it just so happens that they decided to do an upgrade of some management tools that they use, and that required some upgrade on some NuGet packages. So... To do that, they created a script. That script would go and would remove the old packages and deploy the new ones and also apply some changes to some scripts that they are using so that everything continued to, to run smoothly. Now, here's the thing. Um, they tested this. They have this test environment in Azure. They call it Ring Zero. Interesting aside, Ring Zero is also the name for the privilege level of the drivers on Windows, but that's besides the point. And they have this testing environment where they test all these changes before they go live into production. That's all fine and dandy. That's how you're supposed to do your changes. You should not just simply roll new stuff to production. That never ends well. Um, but the thing with getting a, a testing environment for something as complex as Azure is that there are so many moving parts that it's very hard to replicate everything and all the interactions and all of that and have an environment where you can actually test something and make sure that it actually reflects the, the real thing. So they tested the changes in that Ring Zero environment. There were no issues, there were no errors. So they moved to the production aspect of it. And they moved that script that, to production, they started to apply that. So far, so good. Nothing wrong happened there. Everything appeared to be going smoothly. And here's where another interesting factor happens. 
the people running Azure, the, the sysadmins, the operators there, whenever they want to debug a, a problem that happens with one of their tenants, whenever they want to look at some mistake that happened in the database or something like that, they create a snapshot of that database. That allows them to look at the frozen in time moment of the database without disrupting the customer, without affecting production. And they create those snapshots basically all the time whenever they need to troubleshoot something. That's something that doesn't exist in their testing environment. So they don't have snapshots in their testing environment because they don't troubleshoot problems on the testing environment. It's not some it's something that never happened. It's not a use case that they ever had to deal with. Now one of the scripts that they have running in the background is something that goes around looking at all the database servers and looking for existing snapshots that are very old and deleting them. Okay, so far so good. That's a safe approach. It allows them to save some space, recover that space that it's no longer being necessary to being used by the databases and it's all fine and dandy. Coupled together with the changes that they deployed with the new NuGet packages, one of the calls that was made in that script that runs in the background suddenly changed from deleting the, the database snapshot to deleting the database server. The same call without changing the call, instead of just deleting the snapshot, deleted the server. Now, do you see the problem there? Oh yeah. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> uh, that's not a fun day for anyone involved in either side of this situation to have that happen. Yeah, and the script kept running in the background, and they never looked at it. It didn't happen in production in testing environment because again, no snapshots there, so it never needed to run. It never found any servers with the snapshot that it needed to delete, so the problem never appeared in testing, but it appeared in production. This was localized. This only affected the the, the zone that they have in southern Brazil, and when that background job ran, well. It killed like 18 different servers from different customers, and you can assume that a lot of data was taken offline by this. Yeah. Now, the reason why I, I don't just look at this like a facepalm moment is that you see all the moving parts that affect this, all the different interaction that had to happen for this to, to be apparent and be evident. <laughs> We really suck at writing code. When we treat every single code, we're gonna be facing some mistakes if inevitably. We make, we create bugs, we introduce unexpected behavior in programs that we write. I mean, <laughs> we're lucky that we have the software that we have today. It's as easy as that. We really suck at writing code. When we treat infrastructure as code, we really suck at infrastructure as well. So it's easy to overlook one of these interactions. The guy writing the script probably didn't even knew that there was this background job running, and he probably covered all the bases that he knew about. And again, he did the right thing. The testing environment is where you deploy these changes. Nothing break there, so it goes to production. Um, but yeah, when they were faced with this, another series of events, and again, this is just snowballing. Now you have all of these servers that were wrongly deleted, obviously. You have customers complaining, and you start facing a series of events that you were not prepared for. Right. The first thing, a tenant of Azure does not have the ability to recover a deleted server by himself. He has to contact support. 
So each of the servers that were taken down means that somebody from support got a call from a customer and had to walk with that customer through the whole process of recovering the, the, the server. And that's just to get the server back up again. Then there is the backup aspect of this. Um, feel free to interrupt me. This is going to have some more steps in the way. I don't want to just run all, through, through all of them right now. But again, there are many, many issues that we still need to cover here. Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things I could say to give you a, a little bit of a, a break there because that was a lot. Um, some critics of this situation might say, well, Basically, the issue is just they didn't have adequate testing and they should have had adequate testing. Shame on them. And I'll tell you why I feel that's wrong, because it is kind of just to your point, and I'll give you some examples that are that'll be more to your point, that um, we can't predict everything. And I'm not saying that lousy testing is OK, but we don't know that that's the case. And, and nobody wants to create a problem like this and have to give up their nights, weekends and, and create an issue, possibly lose their job. I mean, no one wants to do that. So no one's trying to have uh, bad testing, especially for deployment. People want that to work because there's a lot of testing leading up to that. The problem is user testing is really, really hard to do. And it might not seem that way. You know, might, might, you might think, what's the big, big deal here? You, you have, you just test it. What's, what's the problem? I have seen many reasons why this is a problem. Because like you said, there could be something that nobody has has seen coming. I, I've seen an issue where we had a backup server that was working perfectly fine. And it's been working fine for a long time. You restore backups, they work. Um, and everything's good. But then one time, a backup doesn't restore for a client. Why? Well, that one client had a situation where their hard disk was full and they were helped to, to solve it. And they put in a ticket and and someone got the ticket, oh, it's LVM. So I'll just add another drive and then re just scale it over to that drive. And then the customer has enough space. And that's fine. That worked just fine. Customer's happy. But when it comes to a backup and restore, they restored a server, but the backup system only ever got one virtual disk because it had no logic built into it that there could be another one. So essentially only half of the LVM config was able to restore. Nobody thought to build that logic into the uh, system because yeah, you could argue that should have been accounted for and I agree, but at the same time, if you're not using LVM beyond one disk, like it's this one thing you're just adding because you know you'll need it one day, someone, you know, people leave and they work for other companies and then new people come in and eventually the original people aren't there. And now it becomes a black box where it's been working. And now you have an edge case that you just run into. Another situation I ran into was a new release of a software. They had this automated user testing. So I think they tested it with 10,000 users, which, um, was crazy because I think the app maybe would have maximum three or 4,000 users on a very busy day, never gets to 10,000. So the logic is we're going to test it for 10,000 users. We'll never hit 10,000. Our app is never going to, at least it isn't that popular right now. Max, we might be able to hit 5,000. But if it survives 10,000, we know it's stable because we'll never have that many users. And it worked just fine. And it, it, it more than put up with that abuse. But actual users get a hold of it, two or 3,000. They crashed the server. Why? Because um, the user testing that's simulated is never going to be the same as actual users. We can't predict 
the crazy things they're going to do to break a system. And there's no automation. Not even ChatGPT could, could predict this. So you have this situation where you've done everything. And this is probably a better example. You've done everything. It survives 10,000 simulated users, but real users get a hold of it. Man, they, they may as well be 20,000 users at that point. <laughs> Several interesting things that you mentioned there that are applicable to this story. Let's yep. start with the backup side of it. Um, so backups in Azure can be restricted to the zone that you're in, or they can be redundant across multiple zones. The servers that were deleted had backups on some on one type, some on the other. The ones that were not on the current zone had to have the data migrated to this zone. That added time to the recovery process. Um, Another thing that happened during the restore was that the web servers that were working with the databases that were supposed to be up but had been deleted had this task that periodically checked for a connection to the databases to make sure that it was working. And when it didn't see the databases, those web servers would restart. The service inside it would restart. So since all the databases had been essentially deleted, the check would fail and the web servers were continually restarting. That added load to the recovery process because you would get this flood of requests from the web servers that interrupted the restore process and would have forced the database server that was in the process of being restored to produce a, respo a response. Um, this was compounded <laughs> by when they finally managed to start getting some databases back up, the flood of users was so high that it would overload the servers that were available and would cause some spikes in traffic, like you mentioned, even if they were supposed to handle a lot of users, since the initial hit was so high, the servers would just crash again. Now, they use something called uh, an exponential backoff here on that test that I said that was restarting the web servers. An exponential backoff is when you have a process or something that does an operation, the operation fails and then you retry it you keep increasing the time between the restries. This lets your systems that are supposed to give you the response have some time to work out whatever it is that they're doing or come back online or something like that without continually having to, to reply to that. But the time between retries is increasing and bringing up a server that would should boot in say one second or a couple of seconds because it's running on flash was now taking 90 minutes because it was waiting for that retry time. So all of those things, the backups not being in the right area, the, the restore process being restarted, the time that the server were taking to come back online, all worked out to a complete restore taking about 10 hours to recover the situation. And that's a long time for the cloud. People are expecting the cloud to always be available and always being magical and something like that, and just never having issues like this. And that is absolutely not the case. Yeah, absolutely agree. So, yeah, you have 10 hours of downtime, you have lost business, you have unhappy tenants, you have unhappy customers of those tenants. And there are quite a few things that stand out in this story. First is the, the proper testing environment. And this is where I actually changed my mind about this being a face Palsman story or actually being just something that happens inevitably, is that, as I mentioned before, the amount of things that had to go wrong in exactly the same, the right sequence for something like this to happen 
is absurd. You're not going to cover this specific use case. You're not going to be able to replicate this properly. You're not going to be able to test for this. After it happened, they have created tests that look for this problem, but it was very hard to anticipate this. It was very hard to replicate the environment such that such an event would be created. And yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. It was obviously lacking looking back at it now, but how easy was it to, to think about something like this before? Not so much in my view. And I assume that people listening to the podcast right now might be thinking about different ways their own environments might be susceptible to something like this. It's not something that you plan for or something like that. This is the type of thing that surprises people, surprises operations teams all the time. And after they happen, they probably will only happen once because now you know about it, you're forewarned, and you'll be able to prepare against it and guard against it. But until it happens, there's not much that you can do about it. And that's uh, a key point you mentioned here is, you know, this this... Basically, you're saying this problem, in this one in particular, probably won't happen again. Doesn't mean there won't be a problem. It just won't be this one because they're ready for this. This has happened. <clears throat> I think at a certain point when it comes to system administration, excuse me, <clears throat> you learn from other people's mistakes. Nobody wants to make a mistake. But if you learn a mistake or learn from a mistake and you don't have, and obviously don't give personal details about the company to the public, but you know, it's not a, a, a bad thing if you're allowed to do that, to say, you know, if this issue happens, you're not seeing your company dealt with it, this is what you should do. But people listen to this and then they they might think, oh, well, we use Azure and, and maybe we need another backup system. Or when I mentioned the LVM thing, when you're backing up, you know, backing up only one hard disk, if you have more than one, you need to grab everything within an LVM config. And there there might be people listening to this podcast are like, oh, wow, I never thought of that. And we're using backups and we use LVM. I, I better, uh, when I get back to the office, check this and make sure that we're not going to run into this when we solve a problem. And if I didn't mention that, maybe that person never would have thought of it. And if that person runs into something, then, then they'll learn that lesson. And then maybe someone will learn from them. And we learn from our mistakes. That's how we do it. And we're going to make mistakes. Someone might say, well, they should have did a better job. Well, maybe. But at the same time, if they didn't make this mistake, they'll make a different one because they're human. Absolutely. And to your point about the backups uh, strategies, they had backups. The backups worked. They were they managed to restore without any data loss, which in a situation like this where you have deleted servers, it's amazing that they managed oh, yeah. to recover everything without any data loss. They had downtime, but they didn't lose anything. And that's really, really impressive. Um, for an environment as complex as this, that's really impressive. Oh, yeah. But on the backup side of things, they had the backups. They managed to get all the data back, but all of these interactions between re restoring the data from the backups and the other systems trying to ping the database servers midway and trying to and overloading the servers as they were being restored and all of that that meant that they had never tried the restores on a live environment before again you go back to the testing environment and you cannot replicate this on the testing environment you will never have the right load to, to replicate something like this this has to be trialed on a live environment and it will cause downtime, it will interrupt whatever you're doing, so it's disruptive and companies avoid that like the plague. Um, but when they are faced with a situation like this, it will come and haunt them. 
not having it then. Um, so having just the backups, it's great. It's amazing that they didn't lose any data, but again, they didn't go the full length, they didn't go the full mile and they didn't tr try the restore before or else they would have caught all of these interactions. And probably next time it won't bite them because they are forewarned again, but still not trying the, the restores, that's a no-no. I think the important thing to keep in mind is that cloud is a shared responsibility. And this is something, I mean, I don't know if they coined this phrase, but I first heard of it in AWS because, but they're talking about the security side, meaning, you know, basically what it means is the cloud provider is going to keep bad guys out of the, their data center as best they can, you know, obviously, but um, they're not going to patch your servers for you. That's your job. It's your responsibility to patch the servers. It's their responsibility to keep the hardware that your servers are running on going. It's a shared responsibility. They're more so talking about, you know, specifically security, although yes, this factors into security. They're, they're more talking about, you know, if a um, threat actor gets into a server and deletes all the files, then, you know, it's not their responsibility. It's your responsibility to keep people from logging into a server that shouldn't be there. But taking shared responsibility to another level, I think that's true of everything. Um, not just security, even though, you know, disaster recovery and disaster you know, prevention is security because it helps you with that. Um, you know, the cloud provider has to keep the systems online and running. And you have to keep your server running because you have to keep it updated, fix it when it becomes a problem as a shared responsibility. They have backups. You also need to have backups. If their backups fail, in this case, they didn't. But if they did, then the customer should have backups. Um, one of the two should have a backup at any one time, but they should both have backups because it's important for different reasons. So you could say, yes, it's bad that they lost the data. We don't want that to happen. But if a customer didn't have a backup, if they weren't able to restore it, the customer should have been able to. It's a shared responsibility. Um, I've seen people for this reason have a secondary cloud provider they normally don't use. They just kind of have the servers um, in a cold state, they're not even running. So if something like this happens, they could just power those on and, and funnel their customers over to that other environment. And this is exactly why some enterprises have more than one cloud provider. And another thing here, and we mentioned this on the ransomware recovery episode, talk to your cloud providers. There's people there, there's really great people working there and they can help you when something like this happens. And this is a perfect example of that. So you had to get in touch with them to solve the problem of the server being deleted. And they had to walk over, walk through the recovery process themselves, the, the guys working at Azure. And they did, and they helped the, the companies get their servers back. Sure, it was because of them also that this happened, but they stepped forward and they did solve the problem. Um, Again, this was a tricky situation. This was a very tricky situation to, to solve. We always say that, okay, you don't want to be in that position where people are looking behind your shoulder, see if you're doing the right thing and getting back your systems up immediately. You can bet these guys working at Azure had somebody looking over their shoulders while they were solving this. Oh, yeah. This was big. This was a really big problem. It was localized. It only came to light on this particular zone in south, southern Brazil, probably because by finding the issue there, they managed not to deploy the scripts as they were to the other areas. This might have been yep. the first one where it happened. Um, but they really stepped up their game and they solved this. And again, 
really good job on their part at solving this situation. It was really complicated, a very complex environment to work in, and they managed to solve it. Kudos to them. Absolutely. It's, it's so stressful. Like I, could, I feel like I could paint a picture for how it looked internally, and I never, I've never seen what it looks internally. I don't even know what the building looks like, okay? I couldn't even tell you. I mean, we know where, where it is in the region and everything, but... Um, anytime I've experienced this, you generally have uh, managers with their smartphones, with chats and calls going on, and they're going from engineer's desk to engineer's desk. Okay, how's it going? How's this client going? How's that client going? And then you could have a customer that has a much bigger problem. Okay, I, I need you to pause this. We need to get this person going right now. Let's get these go people going. And they're kind of like running around for hours just trying to manage the recovery live while people are recovering. And meanwhile, you know, the sysadmins there, their hearts are pounding because they're like, they're annoyed, but they're not annoyed like something is going on that uh, is abusive. It's just they understand, right? They have to get systems up and running. Uh, managers want the systems up and running. Customers want the systems up and running. So there's a lot of pressure. It's not like, you know, they're being unfairly stressed. It's just a stressful situation. So they're trying to get through it. And the managers managers are trying to get through it. And it just becomes a lot of work, but it also, there's a lot of um, focus on it. There's a lot of people's eyes on it. And, um, you know, you get through it, you work hard and uh, hopefully get a good vacation because you're going to really want a vacation after this. Now, two points, and these are somewhat related. First, and we've mentioned this, the cloud isn't magical. Stuff doesn't just work in the cloud. You're not supposed to assume that okay, now I'm going to move my whole infrastructure to the cloud, move my servers there, my VMs there, my web service endpoints there, and now they're never going to fail. Everything is going to work 100% of the time and all that. It doesn't work like that. None of the cloud providers can guarantee that. It doesn't happen like that. You might get faster response time replacing stuff. You probably are not aware of any hardware failures because they're hidden behind all the redundancy there, but stuff like this still happens. Stuff still breaks. Additionally, handling a large infrastructure is hard. It's hard for you if you work at a company. It's hard for the cloud providers. Anything that's very complex, like a cloud provider environment, like any hyperscaler can has, it's really, really tricky to manage that. That's a very complex environment with lots of moving parts, lots of different interactions between the systems, and everything has to work perfectly. It has to work like clockwork, or else people are going to notice the, the, the issues. And doing that, and doing that repeatedly, every single day, every single week, every single month, it's really, really tricky. Sometimes things break. Treating everything like code, like I mentioned before, introduces that issue with writing good code. Everybody feels like they're the best programmer in the world until they're not. Everybody makes mistakes, everybody assumes that their code is perfect, but it, it really isn't. You're gonna, you probably have a lot of issues in, the, in your code base, you just haven't noticed them. Right. Um, in the cloud, you have servers, you have systems, you have code, and you have people managing that. All of these things can break in no particular order. All of these things will fail sooner or later. Um, your servers might disappear like it, like it happened here. Your systems might stop responding. The people operating them might have a bad day, might make a mistake, and something like this happens. 
everything on the cloud can fail as if it was on your premises. Yep. Um, managing thousands of servers, it requires automation. It requires scripts like they were they were doing. They were upgrading scripts. Doing that has its own set of challenges. Right. It, the, the mindset that we sometimes operate under, that, okay, it's in the cloud, it's never going to fail, I can trust it blindly and all of that, that only ha- that only works until it stops working. Right. When you have your first instance of an incident like this happening, that's eye-opening. That's when you start to question some other choices that you might have made when you decided to move all your stuff to the cloud. And that's probably when you start thinking about updating your disaster recovery plan. I think another thing, and I have a fun example I'll mention about this. Sometimes it's not the code that goes wrong. Sometimes the code is fine, at least for the purpose that you you want it to be fine for. And then something else happens not related to your code that causes your code to reach a situation that it didn't know how to deal with. So here's an example. I one day decided that I was going to automate the building of Kubernetes clusters here internally because <clears throat> I have like this cheat sheet. I go through it. If I want to build a cluster, you know, I know what to do. I know what commands. Um, I, I actually just used the commands from a recent video and that's my cheat sheet. So I use my own videos as cheat sheets sometimes. So, but I got to a point, I'm like, I need to just automate this because I shouldn't be doing this uh, manually anyway. So I spent like two days on this and I, I, actually did it. Like I had a situation where an entire Kubernetes cluster can be built and from my script and it worked every time. And it it was so thoroughly tested because it got to a point where I was having so much fun with it that I just liked deleting things. I enjoyed deleting things and watching things be rebuilt. So after it was tested fully, I deleted it like 10 or 15 more times just because of how cool and fun it was to watch everything come back. So I knew it was working and I did more testing on this than, I mean, most people would have been satisfied at the third time it worked flawlessly, but after 15 or 20 times, it's still working flawlessly because I'm just having fun. I just love the magic of watching infrastructure come up. So okay, it's time to merge this into the main uh, branch for you know all the other systems to get this config. And it fails on every single one of them. And then I go, I'm like, well, that's weird. Like yesterday I did it this many times and it worked. And, but I didn't change anything. I'm like, okay, this is really weird. Like it's working and now it's 100% fail every single time. And even internally on my test systems, it was failing there too. I checked the commits, no, no commits. And what it ended up being, um, coincidentally, was Kubernetes released a brand new version to their repositories the same day that I was putting it out into production, right? So there was uh, a situation where I think it was the um, container D package in Ubuntu 22.04 was not compatible with the new version of Kubernetes, okay? So I didn't know this, and so eventually the entire thing failed, and I spent like an entire day trying to figure out what I might have done that caused this just to find out I didn't do anything. It's just a new version. And all I had to do was, I think I had to add another repository for an updated container D or something and everything worked just fine. But in this situation, it passed every single test. But when it's time to deploy it, it fails 100% of the time. Not because of the code. It could be because of the code. These things do happen and they're weird, but they make sense when you figure out the root cause like I did. You know, that's actually one of the things that we have multiple products at here. One of them is 
providing support for other languages so that you don't have to go through that. When there's an upgrade between, say, a PHP version mm -hmm. or a Python version, and the new version is is great and all, but it breaks the old code. So one of the things that we provide is the ability to continue running the older version while still receiving updates, security updates for it. Um, but that is a very real problem. Whenever you have a working code base and the breaking change comes along, you didn't do anything wrong. Your stuff was working just fine. And all of a sudden, it stopped working. And now you have to deal with it. Now you probably have to go and write new code or fix stuff or something like that. That's a very real stuff. And it's really bad when it happens because you're going to waste a lot of time just getting back to exactly where you were before with working code. And that sometimes feels like a chore and it really sucks to, to waste time like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, all of these things, then all the complaints about Azure and how it broke and all of that and the work that it got into this. The the basic thing that you should take away from this is the, the testing. You should automate everything that you can, including the test environment. That means trying to get as much data from the real stuff into your testing environment so that it's... A, an accurate representation of what you actually have in production. All of the stuff that we already said that it's really hard to get, the user load, the actual interactions between systems, that still holds true. That's always going to be true. You're never going to have a, that perfect environment, whatever you try to do. It's an uphill battle. It's really difficult to get that. And you'll probably always find stuff that you forgot to include. And that's fine, as long as you keep improving it. Um, if you have a test environment and all of your tests work and then you reach production and something breaks, make sure that you update your test environment to reflect that. Every single time that it happens, don't just fix the issue in production and move along. Go back and fix your test environment. Add new tests to make sure that it doesn't repeat itself. And you'll improve your stuff. It makes sure that you'll not fall into the same problem twice. And that's a really interesting advice. And if you have a mildly complex environment that's something that you sh should really look into if that's not the practice you're following that's something that you should be that was a very very good summary of the the issue and the mindset what the mindset should be i mean that's absolutely the case it's the it's sometimes this the mindset you give i mean don't tell your boss that your code is perfect and it's going to work you don't know i mean i've seen situations where deployments fail just because somebody um missed a turn and hit a telephone pole right during deployment time and cut out the internet i mean you never know just um you know just make sure you're out you know disaster recovery disaster prevention that that's all great and um, everyone's doing the best they can. Nobody wants this situation to happen. Nobody's looking forward to this situation. And um, I think that's super impressive. Like you mentioned, they got the data back. I mean, that that's what you want your cloud provider to be able to do. Absolutely. Again, massive kudos to the Azure team that, uh, that was in charge of this. Um, they really, it was a really remarkable job. I'm not sure how many teams would be able to, to recover everything without any data loss or Again, really impressive stuff that they did. Yep. If anybody from Azure is listening to this, feel free to reach out. We would like to hear your side of the story on this one. Oh, yeah. But again, really interesting stuff that you guys did. Yep. Um, tricky situation, very well handled. And yeah, for a change, let's end this in a positive note. <laughs> it yeah. was an impressive piece of work. Um, it was a tricky bug to find. It was something that 
could have tripped any team, any cloud provider or any just admin team on any complex environment. And they managed to pull out of it and they managed to do it without losing any customer data. And that's always a great plus. Not having a problem feels good, but solving a problem feels really good, especially yeah. if you're able to restore everything. Then you, know, you start out, I'm super stressed. This is a horrible situation. And you're questioning your life decisions. And then when it's over, you're like, wow, I handled that well. It worked out well. And my uh, peers, my boss are very impressed with the fact that we as a team got this back. And um, this is one of those rare situations where it builds more confidence in the platform if they're able to restore like that. We, we spend plenty of time facepalming people. Oh my God, what were they thinking? But in this situation, I think we should focus on the fact that they got it, they got it back. And that that's, that's a confidence building thing to witness. Yeah. Th that's the facepalm change that I, that I mentioned. If this was something, I don't know, something obvious that they had overlooked in the script. Sure. This was a facepalm moment. Somebody should have checked and double checked that, but I don't see in which scenario they could have caught this before it went into right. production. Um, there might have been probably more imaginative people than me can under, can idealize a scenario where they could have caught this, but it was very tricky to reproduce. It was very tricky to, to happen. And yeah, they did. And the way that they handled it is a very good reflection on them. Um, really, really impressive again. I think the, to make this come full circle before we close this off, I remember earlier in the, or very early in the podcast, we talked about a situation and I jokingly refer to this because it's kind of amusing where someone figured out that if you press the enter button over 30 times at the grub password prompt, you'll get in without, the, without a password. And the thing is, you have to, that's, that's a great example. Who thinks to do that when they're testing? Like nobody thinks, oh, like, yeah, my password prompt works because if I put the wrong password, it doesn't get me in and I keep trying to get in and it doesn't work. But if I put the correct password in, it does work. So it looks fine. Nobody thinks, so I'm just going to hit it 30 times and see what happens. I mean, nobody thinks to do these things. And that's why testing is hard because there's always that weird thing that nobody thought to do that uh, causes the problem. So uh, definitely uh, something to keep in mind and on both sides, we're all in this together, whether we're receiving the service or providing the service, we're all in the same community. And you are muted. So there you go. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> it had to happen. Yep. Um, but yeah, absolutely. This was a very interesting example of stuff that can go wrong and does go wrong every now and then. Um, I hope you guys got all the, the interesting details of the story. There were lots of moving things that had to happen in exactly the right order for this to happen. Um, but it's one of those stories that comes from the trenches that you will eventually face in your career if you're into this. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting one and we have a few more coming up. And yeah, that's all for today. Thank you very much for joining. It was a pleasure as always. And until the next one. Yep, see you around. Thank you.